Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody come back, don't they? Isn't that so? You tried to get into the locked room today, didn't you? How do the dead come back, Mother? What's the secret? Oliver Onions, The Beckoning Fair One, Part 5. Even more curious than the commonplace dripping of an ordinary water tap should have tallied so closely with an actually existing air was another result it had, namely that it awakened, or seemed to awaken, in Oleron, an abnormal sensitiveness to other noises of the old house. It has been remarked that the silence obtains its fullest and most impressive quality when it is broken by some minute sound. And, truth to tell, the place was never still. Perhaps the mildness of the spring air operated on its torpid old timbers. Perhaps Oleron's fires caused it to stretch its own anatomy. And certainly a whole world of insect life bored and burrowed in its borks and joists. At any rate, Oleron had only to sit quiet in his chair and to wait for a minute or two in order to become aware of such a change in the auditory scale as comes upon a man who, conceiving the midsummer woods to be motionless and still, all at once finds his ear sharpened to the crepitation of a myriad insects. And he smiled to think of man's arbitrary distinction between that which has life and that which has not. Here, quite apart from such recognisable sounds as the scampering of mice, the falling of plaster behind its panelling, and the popping of purses or coffins from his fire, was a whole house talking to him, had he but known its language. Beams settled with a tired sigh into the old mortises, creatures ticked in the walls, joints cracked, boards complained. With no palpable stirring of the air, window sashes changed their positions with a soft knock in their frames. And whether the place had life in this sense or not, it had at all events a winsome personality. It needed but an hour of musing for Oleron to conceive the idea that, as his own body stood in friendly relation to his soul, so, by an extension and an attenuation, his habitation might fantastically be supposed to stand in some relation to himself. He even amused himself with the far-fetched fancy that he might so identify himself with the place that some future tenant, taking possession, might regard it as in a sense haunted. It would be rather a joke if he, a perfectly harmless author, with nothing on his mind worse than a novel he had discovered he must begin again, should turn out to be laying the foundation of a future ghost. In proportion, however, as he felt this growing attachment to the fabric of his abode, Elsie Bengough, from being merely unattracted, began to show a dislike of the place that was more and more marked and she did not scruple to speak of her aversion. It doesn't belong to today at all, and for you, especially, it's bad, she said with decision. You're only too ready to let go your hold on actual things and to slip into apathy. You ought to be in a place with concrete floors and a patent gas meter and a tradesman's lift, and it would do you all the good in the world if you had a job that made you scramble and rub elbows with your fellow men. Now, if I could get you a job for, say, two or three days a week, one that would allow you heaps of time for your proper work, would you take it? Somehow Oleron resented a little being diagnosed like this. He thanked Miss Bengough, but without a smile. Thank you, but I don't think so. After all, each of us has his own life to live, he couldn't refrain from adding. 
his own life to live. How long is it since you were out, Paul? About two hours. I don't mean to buy stamps or to post a letter. How long is it since you had anything like a stretch? Oh, some little time, perhaps, I don't know. Since I was here last, I haven't been out much. And has Romilly progressed much better for your being cooped up? I think she has. I'm laying the foundations of her. I shall begin the actual writing presently. It seemed as if Miss Bengough had forgotten their tussle about the first Romilly. She frowned, turned half away, and then quickly turned again. Ah, so you've still got that ridiculous idea in your head. If you mean, said Oleron slowly, that I've discarded the old Romilly, and I'm at work on a new one, you're right. I have still got that idea in my head. Something uncordial in his tone struck her, but she was a fighter. His own absurd sensitiveness hardened her. She gave a pshaw of impatience. Where's the old one? she demanded abruptly. Why? asked Oleron. I want to see it. I want to show some of it to you. I want, if you're not wool-gathering entirely, to bring you back to your senses. This time it was he who turned his back, but when he turned around again, he spoke more gently. It's no good, Elsie. I'm responsible for the way I go, and you must allow me to go it, even if it should seem wrong to you. Believe me, I am giving thought to it. The manuscript? I was on the point of burning it, but I didn't. It's in that window seat, if you must see it. Miss Bengough crossed quickly to the window seat and lifted the lid. Suddenly she gave a little exclamation and put the back of her hand to her mouth. She spoke over her shoulder. You ought to knock those nails in, Paul, she said. He strode to her side. What? What is it? What's the matter? he asked. I did knock them in, or rather pulled them out. You left enough to scratch with, she replied, showing her hand. From the upper wrist to the knuckle of the little finger, a welling red wound showed. Good gracious, Oleron ejaculated. Here, come to the bathroom and bathe it quickly. He hurried her to the bathroom, turned on warm water and bathed and cleansed the bad gash. Then, still holding the hand, he turned cold water on it, uttering broken phrases of astonishment and concern. Good Lord, how did that happen? As far as I knew, I'd... Is this water too cold? Does that hurt? I can't imagine how on earth... There, that'll do. No, one moment longer. I can bear it, she murmured, her eyes closed. Presently, he led her back to the sitting room and bound the hand in one of his handkerchiefs, but his face did not lose its expression of perplexity. He had spent half a day in opening and making serviceable the three window boxes, and he could not conceive how he had come to leave an inch and a half of rusty nails standing in the wood. He himself had opened the lids of each of them a dozen times and hadn't noticed any nail. But there it was. It shall come out now, at all events, he muttered, as he went for a pair of pinches, and he made no mistake about it that time. Elsie Bengough had sunk into a chair and her face was rather white, but in her hand was the manuscript of Romilly. She had not finished with Romilly yet. Presently she returned to the charge. Oh, Paul, it will be the greatest mistake you ever, ever made if you do not publish this, she said. He hung his head, genuinely distressed. He couldn't get that incident of the nail out of his head, and Romilly occupied a second place in his thoughts for the moment. But still she insisted, and when presently he spoke, it was almost as if he asked a pardon for something. What can I say, Elsie? I can only hope that when you see the new version, you'll see how right I am. And if in spite of all you don't like her, well, he made a hopeless gesture. 
Don't you see that I must be guided by my own lights? She was silent. Come on, Elsie, he said gently. We've got along well so far. Don't let us split on this. The last words had hardly passed his lips before he regretted them. She had been nursing her injured hand with her eyes once more closed, but her lips and lids quivered simultaneously. Her voice shook as she spoke. I can't help saying it, Paul, but you are so greatly changed. Harsh, Elsie, he murmured soothingly. You've had a shock. Rest for a while. How could I change? I don't know, but you are. You've not been yourself ever since you came here. I wish you'd never seen the place. It's stopped your work, it's making you into a person I hardly know, and it's made me horribly anxious about you. Oh, how my hand is beginning to throb. Poor child, he murmured. Will you let me take you to the doctor and have it properly dressed? No, I shall be all right presently. I'll keep it raised. She put her elbow on the back of her chair and the bandaged hand rested lightly on his shoulder. At that touch, an entirely new anxiety stirred suddenly within him. Hundreds of times previously, on their jaunts and excursions, she had slipped her hand within his arm as she might have slipped it into the arm of a brother, and he had accepted the little affectionate gesture as a brother might have accepted it. But now, for the first time, there rushed into his mind a hundred startling questions. Her eyes were still closed, and her head had fallen pathetically back, and there was a lost and ineffable smile on her parted lips. The truth broke in upon him. Good God! And he had never divined it. And stranger than all was that now that he did see that she was lost in love of him, there came to him not sorrow and humility and abasement, but something else that he struggled in vain against, something entirely strange and new that, had he analysed it, he would have found to be petulance and irritation and resentment and ungentleness. The sudden selfish prompting mastered him before he was aware. He all but gave it words. What was she doing there at all? Why wasn't she getting on with her own work? Why was she here interfering with his? Who had given her this guardianship over him that lately she had put forward so assertively? Changed? It was she, not himself, who had changed. But by the time she had opened her eyes again, he had overcome his resentment sufficiently to speak gently, albeit with reserve. I wish you'd let me take you to a doctor. She rose. No, thank you, Paul, she said. I'll go now. If I need a dressing, I'll get one. Take the other hand, please. Goodbye. He didn't attempt to detain her. He walked with her to the foot of the stairs. Halfway along the narrow alley, she turned. It will be a long way to come if you happen not to be in, she said. I'll send you a postcard the next time. At the gate, she turned again. Leave here, Paul, she said with a mournful look. Everything's wrong with this house. Then she was gone. Oleron returned to his room. He crossed straight to the window box. He opened the lid and stood long looking at it. Then he closed it again and turned away. That's rather frightening, he muttered. It's simply not possible that I shouldn't have removed that nail. 6. Oleron knew very well what Elsie had meant when she had said that her next visit would be preceded by a postcard. She, too, had realised that at last, at last he knew, knew, and didn't want her. It gave him a miserable, pitiful pang, therefore, when she came again within a week, knocking at the door and announced, she spoke from the landing. She didn't intend to stay, she said. 
and he had to press her before she would so much as enter. Her excuse for calling was that she had heard of an inquiry for short stories that he might be wise to follow up. He thanked her. Then, her business being over, she seemed anxious to get away again. Oleron did not seek to detain her, even though he saw through the pretext of the stories, and he accompanied her down the stairs. But Elsie Bengough had no luck whatever in that house. A second accident befell her. Halfway down the staircase, there was the sharp sound of splintering wood, and she checked a loud cry. Oleron knew the woodwork to be old, but he himself had ascended and descended frequently enough without mishap. Elsie had put her foot through one of the stairs. He sprang to her side in alarm. Oh, I say, my poor girl! She laughed hysterically. It's my weight. I know I'm getting fat. Keep still. Let me clear these splinters away, he muttered between his teeth. She continued to laugh and sob that it was her weight. She was getting fat. He thrust downwards at the broken boards. The extrication was no easy matter, and her torn boot showed him how badly the foot and ankle within it must be abraded. Good God, good God, he muttered over and over again. I shall be too heavy for anything soon, she sobbed and laughed. But she refused to reascend and to examine her hurt. No, let me go quickly, let me go quickly, she repeated. But it's a frightful gash. No, not so bad. Let me get away quickly. I'm, I'm, I'm not wanted. At her words, that she was not wanted, his head dropped as if she had given him a buffet. Elsie, he choked brokenly and shocked. But she too made a quick gesture as if she put something violently aside. Oh, Paul, not that, not you. Of course I do mean that too, in a sense. Oh, oh, you know what I mean. But if the other can't be, spare me this now. I wouldn't have come, but, but, oh, I did try to keep away. It was intolerable, heartbreaking. But what could he do? What could he say? He didn't love her. Let me go. I'm not wanted. Let me take away what's left of me. Dear Elsie, you are very dear to me. But again she made the gesture as of putting something violently aside. No, not that. Not anything less. Don't offer me anything less. Leave me a little pride. Let me get my hat and coat. Let me take you to a doctor, he muttered. But she refused. She refused even the support of his arm. She gave another unsteady laugh. I'm sorry I broke your stairs, Paul. You will go and see about the short stories, won't you? He groaned. Then, if you won't see a doctor, will you go across the square and let Mrs. Barrett look at you? Look, there's Barrett passing now. The long-nosed Barrett was looking curiously down the alley, but as Oleron was about to call him, he made off without a word. Elsie seemed anxious for nothing so much as to be clear of the place and finally promised to go straight to a doctor, but insisted on going alone. Goodbye, she said. And Oleron watched her until she was past the hatchet-like toilet boards, as if he feared that even they might fall upon her and maim her. That night, Oleron didn't dine. He had far too much on his mind. He walked from room to room of his flat, as if he could have walked away from Elsie Bengough's haunting cry that still rang in his ears. I'm not wanted. Don't offer me anything less. Let me take away what's left of me. Oh, if he could only have persuaded himself that he loved her. He walked until twilight fell. Then, without lighting candles, he stirred up the fire and flung himself into a chair. Poor, poor Elsie but even while his heart ached for her, it was out of the question. 
If only he'd known, if only he'd used common observation. But those walks, those sisterly takings of the arm, what a fool he had been. Well, it was too late now. It was she, not he, who must now act, act by keeping away. He would help her all he could. He himself would not sit in her presence. If she came, he would hurry her out again as fast as he could. Poor, poor Elsie. His room grew dark, the fire burned dead, and he continued to sit, wincing from time to time as a fresh tortured phrase rang again in his ears. Then, suddenly, he knew not why, he found himself anxious for her in a new sense, uneasy about her personal safety, a horrible fancy that even then she might be looking over an embankment down into the dark water, that she might even now be glancing up at the hook on the door, took him. Women had been known to do these things. Then there'd be an inquest, and he himself would be called upon to identify her, and would be asked how she had come by an ill-healed wound on the hand and a bad abrasion of the ankle. Barrett would say that he had seen her leaving his house. Then he recognised that his thoughts were morbid. By an effort of will he put them aside and sat for a while listening to the faint creakings and tickings and rappings within his panelling. If only he could have married her. But he couldn't. Her face had risen before him again as he had seen it on the stairs, drawn with pain and ugly and swollen with tears. Ugly, yes, positively blubbered. If tears were women's weapons, as they were said to be, such tears were weapons turned against themselves. Suicide again. Then, all at once, he found himself attentively considering her two accidents. Extraordinary they had been, both of them. He could not have left that old nail standing in the wood. Why, he had fetched tools especially from the kitchen, and he was convinced that the step that had broken beneath her weight had been as sound as the others. It was inexplicable. If these things could happen, anything could happen. There was not a beam nor a jam in the place that might not fall without warning, not a plank that might not crash inwards, not a nail that might not become a dagger. The whole place was full of life, even now. As he sat there in the dark, he heard its crowds of noises, as if the house had been one great microphone. Only half conscious that he did so, he had been sitting for some time identifying these noises, attributing each crack or creak or knock its material cause. But there was one noise, which again not fully conscious of the omission, he had not sought to account for. It had last come some minutes ago. It came again now. A sort of soft, sweeping rustle seemed to hold an almost inaudibly minute crackling. For half a minute or so, it had Oleron's attention. Then his heavy thoughts were of Elsie Bengough again. He was nearer to loving her in that moment than he had ever been. He thought how to some men their loved ones were but the dearer for those poor mortal blemishes that tell us we are but sojourners on earth, with a common fate not far distant that makes it hardly worthwhile to do anything but love for the time remaining. Strangling sobs, blearing tears, bodies buffeted by sickness, hearts and minds callous and hard with the rubs of the world. How little love there would be were these things a barrier to love. In that sense he did love Elsie Bengough. What her happiness had never moved in him, a sorrow almost awoke. Suddenly his meditation went. His ear had once more become conscious of that soft and repeated noise, the long sweep with the almost inaudible crackle in it. Again and again it came with a curious insistence and urgency. It quickened a little as he became increasingly attentive. It seemed to Oleron 
that it grew louder. All at once, he started bolt upright in his chair, tense and listening. The silky rustle came again. He was trying to attach it to something. The next moment, he had leapt to his feet, unnerved and terrified. His chair hung poised for a moment and then went over, setting the fire irons clattering as it fell. There was only one noise in the world like that which had caused him to spring thus to his feet. The next time it came, Olderon felt behind him at the empty air with his hand and backed slowly until he found himself against the wall. God in heaven! The ejaculation broke from Olderon's lips. The sound had ceased. The next moment he had given a high cry. What is it? What's there? Who's there? A sound of scuttling caused his knees to bend under him for a moment, but that he knew was a mouse. That was not something that his stomach turned sick and his mind reeled to entertain. That other sound, the like of which was not in the world, had now entirely ceased, and again he called. He called and continued to call, and then another terror, a terror of the sound of his own voice seized him. He didn't dare to call again. His shaking hand went to his pocket for a match, but found none. He thought there might be matches on the mantelpiece. He worked his way to the mantelpiece round a little recess without for a moment leaving the wall. Then his hand encountered the mantelpiece and groped along it. A box of matches fell to the hearth. He could just see them in the firelight, but his hand could not pick them up until he had cornered them inside the fender. Then he rose and struck a light. The room was as usual. He struck a second match. The candle stood on the table. He lighted it, and the flame sank for a moment and then burned up clear. Again he looked round. There was nothing, but there had been something, and might still be something. Formerly, Oleron had smiled at the fantastic thought that by merging an interplay of identities between himself and his beautiful room, he might be preparing a ghost for the future. It had not occurred to him that there might have been a similar merging and coalescence in the past, yet, with this staggering impossibility, he was now face to face. Something did persist in the house. It had a tenant other than himself. And that tenant, whatsoever, or whosoever, had appalled Oleron's soul by producing the sound of a woman brushing her hair. 7. Without quite knowing how he came to be there, Oleron found himself striding over the loose board he had temporarily placed on the step broken by Miss Bengough. He was hatless, and descending the stairs, not until later did there return to him a hazy memory that he had left the candle burning on the table, had opened the door no wider than was necessary to allow the passage of his body, and had sidled out, closing the door softly behind him. At the foot of the stairs another shock awaited him. Something dashed with a flurry up from the disused cellars and disappeared out of the door. It was only a cat, but Oleron gave a childish sob. He passed out of the gate and stood for a moment under the toilette boards, plucking foolishly at his lip and looking up at the glimmer of light behind one of his red blinds. Then, still looking over his shoulder, he moved, stumblingly, up the square. There was a small public house round the corner. Oleron had never entered it, but he entered it now and put down a shilling that missed the counter by inches. Brandy, he said, and then stooped to look for the shilling. He had the little sawdust bar to himself what company there was. Carters and labourers and the small tradesmen of the neighbourhood was gathered in the farther compartment, beyond the space where the white-haired landlady moved about her taps and bottles. 
Oleron sat down on a hardwood settee with a perforated seat, drank half his brandy, and then, thinking he might as well drink it as spill it, finished it. Then he fell to wondering which of the men whose voices he heard across the public house would undertake the removal of his effects on the morrow. In the meantime, he ordered more brandy, for he did not intend to go back to that room where he had left the candle burning. Oh no, he couldn't have faced even the entry in the staircase with the broken step, certainly not that pith-white, fascinating room. He would go back for the present to his old arrangement of workroom and separate sleeping quarters. He would go to his old landlady at once, presently, when he had finished his brandy, and see if she could put him up for the night. His glass was empty now. He rose, had it refilled, and sat down again. And if anybody asked his reason for removing again, oh, he had reason enough, reason enough. Nails that put themselves back into wood again and gashed people's hands. Steps that broke when you trod on them. And women who came into a man's place and brushed their hair in the dark were reasons enough. He was querulous and injured about it all. He had taken the place for himself, not for invisible women to brush their hair in. That lawyer fellow in Lincoln's Inn should be told so too before many hours were out. It was outrageous letting people in for agreements like that. A cut glass partition divided the compartment where Oleron sat from the space where the white-haired landlady moved, but it stopped seven or eight inches above the level of the counter. There was no partition at the further bar. Presently, Oleron, raising his eyes, saw that faces were watching him through the aperture. The faces disappeared when he looked at them. He moved to a corner where he could not be seen from the other bar, but this brought him into line with the white-haired landlady. She knew him by sight, had doubtless seen him passing and repassing, and presently she made a remark on the weather. Oleron did not know what he replied, but it sufficed to call forth a further remark that the winter had been a bad one for influenza, and that the spring weather seemed to be coming at last. Even this slight contact with the commonplace steadied Oleron a little. An idle, nascent wonder whether the landlady brushed her hair every night, and if so, whether it gave out those little electric cracklings was shut down with a snap, and Oleron was better. With his next glass of brandy, he was all for going back to his flat. Not go back, indeed he would go back. They should very soon see whether he was to be turned out of his place like that. He began to wonder why he was doing the rather unusual thing he was doing at that moment, unusual for him, sitting, hatless, drinking brandy in a public house. Suppose he were to tell the white-haired landlady all about it, to tell her that a caller had scratched her hand on a nail, that later had had the bad luck to put her foot through a rotten stair, and that he himself, in an old house full of squeaks and creaks and whispers, had heard a minute noise and had bolted from it in fright. What would she think of him? That he was mad, of course. The real truth of the matter was that he hadn't been doing enough work to occupy him. He had been dreaming his days away filling his head with a lot of moonshine about a new Romilly, as if the old one wasn't good enough. And now he was surprised that the devil should enter an empty head. Yes, he would go back. He would take a walk in the air first. He hadn't walked enough recently. And then he would take himself in hand, settle the hash of that sixteenth chapter of Romilly. Fancy, he had actually been fool enough to think of destroying fifteen chapters. And thenceforth he would remember that he had obligations to his fellow men and work to do in the world. There was the matter in a nutshell. He finished his brandy and went out. He had walked for some time before any other bearing of the matter than that on himself occurred to him. 
At first, the fresh air had increased the heady effect of the brandy he had drunk, but afterwards his mind grew clearer than it had been since morning, and the clearer it grew, the less final did his boastful self-assurances become, and the firmer his conviction that, when all explanations had been made, there remained something that could not be explained. His hysteria of an hour before had passed. He grew steadily calmer, but the disquieting conviction remained. Deep fear took possession of him. It was a fear for Elsie. For something in this place was inimical to her safety. Of themselves, her two accidents might not have persuaded him of this, but she herself had said it. I'm not wanted here. And she had declared that there was something wrong with the place. She had seen it before he had, well and good. One thing stood out clearly, namely, that if this was so, she must be kept away for quite another reason than that which had so confounded and humiliated Oleron. Luckily, she had expressed her intention of staying away. She must be held to that intention. He must see to it. And he must see to it all the more that he now saw his first impulse never to set foot in the place again was absurd. People didn't do that kind of thing. With Elsie made secure, he could not with any respect to himself suffer himself to be turned out by a shadow, nor even by a danger merely because it was a danger. He had to live somewhere, and he would live there. He must return. He mastered the faint chill of fear that came with the decision and turned in his walk abruptly. Should fear grow on him, should fear grow on him again, he would perhaps take one more glass of brandy. But by the time he reached the short street that led to the square, he was too late for more brandy. The little public house was still lighted, but closed, and one or two men were standing talking on the curb. Oleron noticed that a sudden silence fell on them as he passed, and he noticed further that the long-nosed Barrett whom he passed a little lower down, did not return his good night. He turned in at the broken gate, hesitated, merely an instant in the alley, and then mounted his stairs again. Only an inch of candle remained in the Sheffield stick, and Oleron did not light another one. Deliberately, he forced himself to take it up, to make the tour of his five rooms before retiring. It was as he returned from the kitchen across his little hall that he noticed that a letter lay on the floor. He carried it into his sitting-room and glanced at the envelope before opening it. It was unstamped and had been put into the door by hand. His handwriting was clumsy, and it ran from beginning to end without a comma or period. Oleron read the first line, turned to the signature, and then finished the letter. It was from the man Barrett, and it informed Oleron that he, Barrett, would be obliged if Mr. Oleron would make other arrangements for the preparing of his breakfasts and the cleaning out of his place. The sting lay in the tail that is to say, the postscript. This consisted of a text of scripture. It embodied an allusion that could only be to Elsie Bengough. A seldom-seen frown had cut deeply into Oleron's brow. So that was it. Very well. They would see about that on the morrow. But the rest is seemed merely another reason why Elsie should keep away. Then his suppressed rage broke out. The foul-minded lot. The devil himself could not have given a leer at anything that had ever passed between Paul Oleron and Elsie Bengough, yet this nosing rascal must be prying and talking. Oleron crumpled the paper up, held it in the candle flame, and then ground the ashes under his heel. One useful purpose, however, the letter had served. It had created in Oleron a wrathful blaze that effectually banished pale shadows, 
Nevertheless, one other puzzling circumstance was to close the day. As he undressed, he chanced to glance at his bed. The coverlets bore an impression as if somebody had lain on them. Oleron couldn't remember that he himself had lain down during the day. Offhand, he would have said that certainly he had not, but after all he could not be positive. His indignation for Elsie acting possibly with the residue of the brandy in him excluded all other considerations, and, as he put down his candle, lay down and passed immediately into a deep and dreamless sleep, which, in the absence of Mrs. Barrett's morning call, lasted almost once round the clock. So that was part two of The Beckoning Fair One by Oliver Onions, which was sections five, six, and seven. I think there are 12 in total, so we're just over halfway. Um, I'll see how they go, depending on the length. Hopefully I'll get it all done in one more episode. Anyway, here we have, we start off with Oliver Onions with Paul Oleron sitting in the house listening to the noises. And from nowhere, the first scene is where he begins to muse that someone in the future might have an impression of a ghost that is started by him being there. So he wonders about him creating a ghost just by living in the house. And I think that does two things. He listens to the house and all the noises and talks about the foolishness of trying to divide humans, trying to divide things that have life from things that don't have life. So we set up that the house is alive. Okay, it has some kind of personality and intent, I suppose. That's a key thing about being alive. You, a living creature, wants things, you know. Um, even if it's just food. But in this case, it's a bit more subtle than that, I think. So it wants him. It wants his love. And then when I listen to this, and I've listened to it and I've edited it, and I'm thinking about it, and, you know, you read some reviews of this story and they go on, well, it's not a real ghost story. To me, it seems obvious that Oliver Onions intended this to be a ghost story. He sets it up as a ghost story. There is a ghost in the house. You know, I can't see how it is. I never for a second thought it was just Oleron going mad. If he does go mad, it's the effect of the ghost on him, the malign, the malevolent effect of the ghost. So it is a ghost story. Um, and, you know, these things that happen to Elsie, they're clearly set out as not coincidences because they're not just in his mind, they really happen to somebody else. So she scratches herself on a nail, which he is absolutely certain he took out. She puts her foot through a stairboard that he is certain that he's been up and down. It was was, was enough. And so he begins to suspect that the house um, has a bad intention towards Elsie and her, her safety, in fact. So, you know, he, I think definitely, definitely, definitely the house is set up as a monster. And of course, the personality of the house starts to grow. It is a tune, it's the noises, and then it's that very distinctive sound of a woman brushing her hair with the crackling of the brush and the pulling and the crackling. And that scares him so much that he, he runs out. He remembers also that the house, and we set up again, there's this, this rivalry between Elsie Bengoff, who's, and she, poor girl, goes on about how she, she's fat and she, that's why she put her foot through the staircase. But I think the purpose of that is to, is to remind us of her humanity. She is a flawed human being, and this spirit that's in the house is some kind of um, dream woman, you know. And maybe Onions is saying that men have a tendency to get themselves lost in imaginings of perfect spirit women and they ignore the honest-to-goodness, down-to-earth um, reality of real women with all their flaws. They may sweat and cry. I'm sure they don't. Yeah, they do. In fact, I know they do. So they run after stupid, 
stupid dreams and ideals and uh, women who are not suitable at all. So there we are. And he could have had Elsie, and Elsie's wonderful, really. The more I read it, the more I like it. He's not so wonderful because one of his, um, and he becomes less likable, to be honest, because when he starts to think about her killing himself, killing herself, his first thought is not, in fact, poor Elsie. It's, oh my God, they'll ask, uh, how did she get the nail uh, cut? And, and, and then this gash on her knee, and, and she was seen at your house. And so he thinks about himself first. The other little insight into society at the time is the disapproving views of Barrett, Mr. Barrett, who is, of course, is some kind of, and he makes quite clear that he's not an educated man, he can't spell. Um, he does it in his accent. So, you know, we know that Barrett is not an educated man, but he's a prejudiced man and he has very strict views on morality and what's what. And this, actually, this narrow view of Christianity, I, I come from, on my, my, my dad's side were Catholics, but my mum's side were um, Methodists. And there's definitely, going back a few generations, this stern disapproval of frivolity and anybody, and everybody had to behave themselves. So I'm familiar with this kind of, and then I went, of course, to Wales at a time when nonconformism was stronger than it is now. And so I, I am familiar with this um, disapproval, you know, holier than thou, you shouldn't do these things and, if, and we will socially ostracize you. So this is another aspect of the story. So it's a, it's a good story. There's lots of things in it. And uh, so we have, you know, the setup of the battle between Elsie and the ghost and the ghost is winning. So the silky rus rustling. So there we are. The other thing I've got to say is I've had a couple of, I, get, I generally get really good, good reviews on um, Chartable. Well, it, it, it's, it's aggregated through Chartable. I mean, put, people put them on Apple and wherever. And, uh, but a couple of people have said that I narrate too fast. Well, I do everything too fast. That's true. But I'm going to try and slow down. So I tried to slow down a little bit in this one. Hopefully that's worked out. What else is going on? London Horror Stories is out. London Horror Stories by Tony Walker. I have taken the liberty of putting some links in the show notes. But even if you didn't follow the links, you can Google London Horror Stories by Tony Walker. It's selling moderately well. Um, but extra sales are always welcome. Especially reviews are welcome. Only positive ones, though. I think I said that last time, didn't I? which isn't very uh, honest and upstanding of me, but, you know, I'm just a human. There we are. I've got to thank the very generous support. So my patrons, I've got 12 patrons now. That's fantastic on Patreon. That's really fantastic. And they are Sarah Jackson, Emily Beach, Garrett Johnson, Mark Miller, Emma Beach, must be some connection, you think, Christopher Valerie Sawyer, another Emma, and Sandra Vale, Donna Constanza, Kate Unwin and Margaret. So thank you very, very much to all of you. That is fantastic. There's another way to support the show, and that is through donations through Ko-fi or Coffee K-O-F-I. And my page is uh, Tony Walker, K-O-F-I, and there's uh, some free stuff and uploads. Of course, the patrons, uh, there's a, I'm trying to kind of make value on Patreon as well, so producing a lot of extra stuff to give to the patrons. I'm actually thinking of doing Dracula as the book, as a patrons only thing, which would only be available to them. Just to say thank you, you know, for, for their support. Anyway, going back to Kofi. Kofi is, um, or coffee is, I never know how to say it, is um, a way of just kind of uh, one-off support. There's no ongoing patronage. But so I just want to thank uh, Leanne, Erica, Brad, Alex, Leanne again, um, Georgina, you know, and buy me all this coffee. So, and uh, Joe, 
Yeah, so this is really fantastic, you know, and I really, really do appreciate it. Actually, it's very touching to think people think what I'm doing is worthwhile. So that's great. What else do I have to say? Just to hope that you're all well, the hope that you're uh, doing stuff. Um, I've got probably, so in terms of the, the schedule, we've got probably, well, we've certainly got one more Beckoning Fair one, maybe two. I'd hope to get it all done. It depends on my time. I, I've got a, an, another modern horror writer in stream that I'm going to interview. I've got a load of ideas for, for stories. And I thought I might do, just as a teaser, one of my own from a forthcoming book that I'm working on called uh, horror, horror for Har- Halloween. Horror, yeah, Horror for Halloween. It's hard to say that. It's actually available to, it's available now on Kofi and Patreon, My Niece Alison, which is set in Wales. And some people say it's very scary. So there you are. But I've never done any of my own stories uh, on, on the podcast. Be, I'm a bit, a bit shy, a bit scared. But of course, that is the purpose. So anyway, there we are. More Beckoning Farewell next week. You all take care, stay safe, and I will speak to you soon.